Welcome to the future of the administrative state, where we explore the virtues and vices of administrative power at a time when both right and left fear a growing executive branch. I'm Tony Mills, editor of Real Clear Policy and your host for this podcast. Each week, we explore a different aspect of the administrative state and its political ramifications. Joining me today is John Marini, a senior fellow of the Claremont Institute and a professor of political science at the University of Nevada, Reno. John is the author or editor of numerous books and articles about the administrative state, the separation of powers, and the Constitution. His July 2016 essay, Donald Trump and the American Crisis, argued that Trump's rise should be understood in the context of Americans' growing dissatisfaction with the administrative state. John, thanks for coming on. You're welcome. Thank you. Conservatives have have worried for a number of years about the growing power of the executive branch. And with a Trump presidency, uh, those fears are now being echoed on the left. Uh, You've been analyzing these trends for some time. um, And last summer, you made a different kind of argument, which was that um, in an essay in the Claremont Review of Books, you made the case that the rise of Trump was actually a response to the American electorate's frustrations with uh, the rise of the administrative state. Could you explain that thesis? Sure. Uh, I think when you look at these questions in terms of uh, executive power, legislative power, in other words, in terms of the traditional constitutional powers that are established in those institutions, I think it's very difficult now to understand American politics in light of those constitutional strictures on the offices themselves, because my view is that what organizes politics in America now is not the Constitution. It's the way in which the institutions have adapted to the administrative. And so it makes it hard to analyze American politics in traditional terms. In other words, the strength or weakness of this or that branch. Now, that doesn't mean that those branches and their powers are unimportant. It just means that they respond to incentives, the branches, that are not understood in terms of their constitutional role. So their their response is almost always in terms of how do we adapt to the conditions that we find ourselves in. That condition is one in which Congress over the past 40 or 50 years has essentially abdicated its lawmaking power has established the authority of lawmaking in the hands of an administrative apparatus whose qualification primarily is understood in terms of technical expertise. In other words, that politicians simply don't have the resources to be able to understand the complexity of modern life and that 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 must be essentially uh, farmed out. Uh, If you look at it more deeply, theoretically, you could see that this was already uh, understood in thought in Hegel, when Hegel argued that the end of history is really also the end of politics and philosophy and religion. 
and it's meant to be understood then as what replaces those or what he calls organized intelligence or knowledge. So Hegel's view for this thing that we call the administrative state was the rational state. Rational meaning, of course, that technical rationality or science is going to solve our problems. So the authority of modern administration, you have to understand the modern administrative state in terms of its of the authority that establishes administration. And that's rational authority that is meant to be in opposition to political authority. The rule of administration is meant to replace politics. Now, of course, our Constitution and the way in which we understand politics in America makes that difficult because it ignores the fact that the sovereign in, 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 in a country like America still remains the Constitution and the compact of the people. So the people simply cannot be ignored. Although one could say that in the last 50 or 60 years, both parties have done a good job of ignoring the people as a way of establishing rule on their behalf. And what you have is organized interests establish the ground of politics in Washington. It's understood in terms of groups, not in terms of a common good. All of this is perfectly intelligible in the way in which the administrative state has been put in place over the last century, because it's, it's, this process is not new. Uh, I date the, 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 the great problem of modern administrative state as one that, that essentially uh, occurred in the 60s. Before that, you had, you had intellectuals. You had various of the institutional forces, including the presidency, that pushed for centralization of administration. But Congress never fully bought into that centralized administration until probably the mid-60s. That's when the institution of Congress really transformed itself from primarily a body that, that was comprised of representatives whose interests were primarily in their states and were understood in terms of their states. And so their, their political bases still remained the state, uh, within the states, and they were very reluctant to centralize administration uh, because they knew it would give up, they would have to give up their lawmaking power. But once they did it, then they re- they reorganized themselves in, in a number of reforms in, the, uh, in 1970 and, and, and after that established really a kind of uh, uh, co-executive branch. In other words, it became not so much a deliberative or lawmaking body, but an administrative oversight body. And so it had to really beef up its own staffing because what became important for them in terms of its constituency was services to the constituent. And, and what became important to, uh, to congressmen then was the extent to which they could control the administration and have a say in the administration. You could say they became co-administrators in various parts of the apparatus. 
And, uh, and so it becomes possible then for a member of Congress to become an important player in a, in a very small policy arena. But what you lose is the ability of Congress to act as a deliberative body or as a body at all. <laughs> in other words, it, the, the, the way in which separation of powers is supposed to work, of course, is that each of the branches are supposed to understand the public good from the perspective of the branch. So that mm -hmm. means first they have to understand how to defend their own institution. And then, of course, there are different perspectives on, on the, the public good derived from the presidency with a nationally uh, a national constituency and the legislature from locally derived constituencies within the states. And that is completely undermined with the centralization of administration. Now, when I talk about centralized administration, I'm using Tocqueville's term. Because when I first started writing about the administrative state, which is more than 40 years ago, uh, I did, the, the term administrative state really was not in use in, a, in, a, in the American uh, uh, lexicon in political science. So I called the, what I was studying the rise of centralized administration using Tocqueville's term. Mm -hmm. Tocqueville's term for centralized administration is ultimately the, his view that that's what democracies have to fear as a new form of despotism. So bureaucratic rule, because the, the term really wasn't even in common French usage in Tocqueville's time, he, he, he doesn't call it bureaucracy. But what, what we now call bureaucracy is rational rule. That's what Tocqueville was pointing to, although he didn't fully, I don't think, understand the character of that rule so well yet in, in, in 1835, 1840, when he wrote the, the uh, Democracy in America. But by the 20th century, Max Weber did understand that phenomenon pretty well and really clearly outlined the extent to which this rational rule ultimately was going to be a form of bondage that would be very difficult to escape once it is imposed. You mentioned a few times um, some German thinkers and philosophers, Hegel in the 19th century and then later, uh, late 19th, early 20th century, Max Weber. Um, could you talk a little bit uh, more about how those ideas of political philosophy and theory influenced American thinking about governments. How, how do we get from uh, Hegel writing in Prussia in the 19th century to the great society in America in the 1960s? What's the, the trajectory there? Yeah, well, the, traje the, the trajectory, of course, begins in the 19th century. And I would say that the decisive event in American education was the creation of Johns Hopkins University in 1876 in, in Baltimore, which was, in a sense, you could say, the first Hegelian university in, in North America. It was established <laughs> as a freestanding graduate school, and it was, predicate, it was staffed by, by students of students of Hegel, and all the early progressive leaders, John Dewey, Woodrow Wilson, many of the, 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 the think, the, those who became the progressive thinkers who imbibed the view 
that politics has to be understood not in terms of a compact, a social compact like a constitution, but in terms of the state. The state is an organism. It's a, it's a vehicle really for the administration of progress. And so the, the idea of the state and, uh, becomes an important concept in, a, in the early study of, of uh, politics in America. In fact, Woodrow Wilson wrote a book on the state. And many other uh, progressives understood politics now in the late part of the 19th century in terms of the idea of the state. And the state is, is what Hegel would call the matter of history, really. And how it organized that matter for Hegel's, in Hegel's view, the central organizing element of the, of the modern state was, it is, was the necessity of cultivating knowledge. And that, he, Hegel didn't use the term bureaucracy either, obviously, but he, he established what, what he called a class of civil servants who had no interest except seeking knowledge, and that knowledge would be used on behalf of the public good. So the civil service became the bureaucracy was understood in Hegel's terms in, to, in terms of these are the people destined to state service because they seek no power. They seek knowledge. Now, if you took the American founders like James Madison, they would laugh at that assertion because they didn't believe that any human being was not self-interested and ultimately would all you would begin to understand and perhaps utilize that power on behalf of its own interest. And of course that's what happened in the 20th century and that's what Weber saw the bureaucracy was not about manufacturing or producing knowledge it was about establishing domination it was about establishing control. And of course, it creates its own turf, it creates its own turf, establishes its own way of understanding. And of course, the, 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 the reason why the progressives in the late part of the 19th century were willing to accept bureaucracy is because they thought it was nonpartisan. It was neutral. And so either party could use it. Now, by the time you get to the end of the 20th and certainly in the 21st century, you can see that the bureaucracy is an element of the administrative state, and its and its partisanship is on behalf of the administrative state. And so, any any anybody who's a threat to the administrative state is a threat to that apparatus. You've drawn these these two sorts of visions of uh, of governance. On the one hand, there's the uh, the tradition that the American founders came out of contract theory, natural rights theory. Uh, and then uh, in opposition to that, we have this uh, progressive idea, which you see is originating in German thought, where the state is seen as an organic uh, entity in which uh, knowledge and rationality are the sort of governing principles. Um, I'd like to bring this conversation uh, down to the concrete level of policy. How, how does this vision, which uh, – let's say, takes the place of the uh, founder's vision on, on your picture in the early 20th century. How does this get translated into um, uh, policy programs and what the government is actually doing in the mid-20th century? 
Well, first, it was an intellectual revolution. And that meant then, of course, that by the end of the 19th century, you had teachers. You had people who who understood the, the problem of politics in terms of what – the broad – let me put it in the broadest language. The way in which – the 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 progressives understood politics was in terms of history or philosophy of history. The way the American founders understood politics was in terms of nature, the understanding of human nature, and the ideal of of the uh, in the let's say the philosophic ground of of understanding nature, distinguishing it from convention was natural right that established the ground of of justice in the regime. But philosophy of history then is established in the university. And let me say about Johns Hopkins, as Edward Schills, a, a well-known sociologist in the 20th century, said mm -hmm. the, 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 the founding of Johns Hopkins University was the most important educational event in the, in the Western Hemisphere. Because every other school in America reorganized itself around Hopkins' model and created and established philosophy of history as the ground of how we understand ourselves. So it was, in a way, an undermining and even a repudiation of an understanding of man in terms of nature, in terms of natural right. But more importantly, it was a repudiation of the whole philosophic theological tradition. It was the undermining of the authority of philosophy and religion and establishing the authority of science as the ground of genuine knowledge. So what you get in this period, now if you look already, already by the uh, progressive era was politically uh, uh, viable already in the election of 1912. If you look at all of the candidates in the election of 1912, Teddy Roosevelt, educated at Harvard, had, a, had was studied with John Burgess, who was one of the earliest progressive political scientists. Uh, Woodrow Wilson, also a, a progressive. Uh, all of them were progressives. In other words, they understood politics in terms of philosophy of history, and the animating dynamic, dynamic forces of history. Right understood in terms of society or economics. In Marx, of course, class becomes the moral ground of how to understand uh, uh, the way history evolves in terms of the fight for production, for who controls the means of production. On the other side, we've forgotten about it now. Those conservatives that were looking to society as the ground of understanding politics Race became a fundamental fact in determining more, the ground of morality. So uh, in that period from 1870s uh, on, progressivism was absolutely hostile to the principle of equality. And for many, for, for I would say all the way up to probably World War II, because Social science never repudiated its origins in those categories of class or race. And the only thing that discredited race, race theory in sociology, in anthropology, in economics, in political science was Adolf Hitler. Mm -hmm. 
you any you go I have my students go back and look at the origins and the of all of the social sciences. Every one talks about the superiority of race and the white race, the the the, the Teutonic race or the Caucasian race. So these categories of history become dominant in in the way in which politics is established uh in in terms of the understanding of politics and and they quickly get incorporated into uh reform movements because it's about reform i mean all the the early progressive reforms were in the in the municipal governments in in trying to get rid of the machine politics within the the uh the the cities and and then the states and ultimately the federal government but but i mean progressivism is the political manifestation of philosophy of history once it becomes politicized the character of history is is revealed in this way history moves in a direction that is understood to be rational and those who are who try to facilitate that transformation in other words adapt to change are called progressives those who oppose that change in other words, you cling to something in the past, some irrational, outmoded thing, are reactionary. Now, in terms of politics in Europe, that, that translated into liberal and conservative. In America, that liberalism and conservatism really doesn't take hold until FDR, rather than using progressives, tried to establish that agenda, the, the uh, programmatic agenda of, of progressivism, he called it liberalism. And so for much of the 20th century, the progressive party was understood in terms of liberal and conservative. Hmm. In America, Democrats and Republicans, it, it's, it's a much more complicated thing in America because it's probably not until after the Great Society that that pe that American politics becomes self-aware of of these things in, in a way in which liberalism is it takes a hit when Reagan wins in 1980 and it recoils it recoils from that hit it begins to go back to its earlier language of progressivism so by the end of the century we're 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 still talking these ideological terms. But these terms are only intelligible in terms of philosophy of history. Conservative, reactionary, liberal, I mean progressive, reactionary, liberal, conservative. And that means a certain posture toward time. And what the political character is that must be understood in terms of, of how we progress. If progress takes place through the use of organized knowledge or intelligence, as Hegel thought, then more and more of the tasks of human society have to be handed over to those who have knowledge. I argue that the social sciences were created as the applied sciences of the state. The reason the, reason the administrative state is so complicated now is it, it crosses the lines of liberal and conservative. The difficulty, of course, is reconciling administrative rule with political rule. That's what has been the great difficulty since the 60s. And the presidents who have understood this best were Nixon, Reagan, and now Trump, in my view.
It's impossible to establish the consent of the governed when the authority of government is in the hands of the of the uh, technically uh, that that technical class of elites. You're listening to the future of the administrative state. I'm Tony Mills, editor of Real Clear Policy. I'm speaking with the Claremont Institute's John Marini, who's been explaining the historical and philosophical origins of the administrative state. He argues that in the 20th century, a new political vision, rooted in the idea of a centralized rational bureaucracy, came to supplant that of America's founders, which was rooted in constitutionalism and natural rights. I'd like to come back to the the contemporary political context uh, in a moment, but uh, something in your argument that that really uh, jumped out at me, which may be less familiar to our listeners. So we have this idea of concentration of sort of knowledge expert class in a centralized administrative state, and that that takes the place of the kind of uh, local representative uh, forms of governance that preceded say, the mid-20th century. But another aspect of your argument is that this is also, uh, this trend leads to the the diminishing of politics and specifically of the American political parties. Could you talk about that idea, how the parties grow weaker when the administrative state grows stronger? Well, the reason is, of course, at one time, parties were a way of linking the citizens and their interests to the governing the the governing offices themselves. And so, in a way, parties established patronage for those partisans who who would and could participate in public life. Once you get an administrative state, once that starts to centralize, it becomes easier to establish patronage through government rather than through parties. So civil service reform back in the 1880s, actually, uh, began the process of of establishing qualifications for office that were based on on expertise. Uh, And, and of course, but it took a long time before you broke down the character of the federal system in America. In other words, federalism was still fairly dynamic until the mid-60s. Now, I mean, it's, it was eroding in, throughout that century because all there, every most of the important forces, institutional forces, were for centralizing administration, both intellectual and certainly those in the executive branch and the presidency in the first half of the 20th century. I'd say all of the presidents before the 1960s were for greater centralization of of authority but it, it, when congress when congress acquiesced then it became easier to actually provide for the states from the center than try to maintain political power in the periphery so uh in in terms of of a, a state when a, when a congressman or a senator had his political base within the state, he cultivated the constituencies within the state, and his and his political base really was understood from the perspective of the state. But when when things got centralized, it was far easier to to 
to placate the, the, the interest within the state from the largesse of the administrative state itself, from the things that government would begin to do in a systematic way. And, and of course, that, that, that made it harder then to connect the people and the, and the people who would normally have been partisans on behalf of this or that particular uh, political party, uh, all become, in a way, constituents who, when you start establishing, say, a function of ombudsman, as many congressmen did after they, uh, after they aggrandized their staffs, it doesn't matter who you who has a problem with the government, if they have a problem with the IRS or with immigration. Most people go to their congressman, and most people will vote for that congressman on those personal favors, even if their, their political views are different. It's hmm. that kind of service that made it by the, by the end of the 60s and certainly all the way up through, almost through our day, but it's through much of the last 40, 50 years, it was not uncommon for 90% of House members to get reelected. Incumbency was, it was almost, it was very difficult to defeat an incumbent. And all of that was meant, of course, that the parties diminished in terms of their importance to the members. What they had access to in Washington was far more important. And as you got specialized interests, organized interests that had a stake in centralized administration, they began to, to give the resources you needed in Washington to retain your office. You could almost forget your, your constituents in the state in a partisan way, I mean. You've mentioned uh, Trump. You know, we were talking in the beginning about um, the place of, of Donald Trump in, in this broader history. Can you connect this, uh, this idea of the rise of the administrative state, the decline of the parties um, with the rise of Donald Trump last year and his ultimate election? How do you see Trump fitting into this picture? Well, I would say that what Trump saw is what any Republican in the past would have seen much earlier than anyone wanted to see, and that was one could see already by 2010 that there was a great move throughout the country that was spontaneous, almost a, a, a grassroots movement in the Tea Party, and no Republican wanted to have anything to do with that. That shows you the extent to which the Washington establishment had its way of dealing with these problems that they did not want to. They did not want to try to take advantage of that movement. One would have in an earlier time regarded that as a golden opportunity. Look at all these people wanting to, wanting to get out and deal and, 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 and deal with these problems and they're willing to work. I, I would say that in Washington, there's very little understanding of politics. Now, it's ironic that a businessman is more political than these people in Washington. He understand, he understood that. You notice what he did as well. He ignored specialized interest in terms of how it is you appeal to the electorate. He spent half the money. He didn't use all the consultants. Because what are those consultants and those experts for? They are, what they are for is knowing how to divide 
and mobilize constituencies into organized groups that can be manipulated through through persuasion, social science techniques, advertising, etc. Trump said he was appealing to everyone. All Trump did was take advantage to see what 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 was a, an opportunity out there that the Washington establishment was unwilling to to, to see. Both parties uh, have accommodated themselves to the administrative state and are, and, and in a certain way, like to function in that way because it, 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 it gives them status and it gives them power over policy arenas without any responsibility or accountability. Very hard for, I mean, you can see it now in the, in the uh, Obamacare repeal. You can see these people who wanted to, who were happy to vote against to repeal Obamacare when it when the vote was meaningless. Now, when they're tasked with 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 actually going against those interests, because look, these policies are established by organized interests. The people in Washington that have a stake in organized in in centralized administration is not just. The economic interest is all of the interests of the United States. It's all of the social, the economic, the cultural, the educational, the scientific, even the religious communities are organized around the administrative state. No, no, there is no defense of the autonomy of civil society anymore in, among the elites. And, and that has been broken down, of course. One can see that all of those civil society institutions, including the family, were undermined when the authority of social science replaced the authority of, of society, parental, paternal, traditional. And that's what Weber noted, too. He said the replacement of social authority by rational authority is the destruction of those social institutions. And, the, and, and, and every one of those social institutions understands itself socially, not rationally, including the family. I'd like to ask you about this, uh, the role of civil society here. So uh, often what uh, defenders of the administrative state will say is that um, there's, there's no good alternative. If uh, administrative agencies don't take on the role of uh, lawmaking, uh, crafting regulation, Congress won't do it, and certainly if the federal government doesn't do it, uh, it just won't get done. And I think on the other side, you have this uh, this argument that the rise of the administrative state is precisely the thing that has weakened uh, these other layers and levels of government and society. So my question is, um, how, if your analysis is right, What's the alternative? What's the political vision um, that could replace this administrative state? And how do we get from where we are today to that or get back to that? Yeah, that, that, that is a big problem. I mean, and the, the problem with it is, of course, as those social institutions were essentially replaced by rational institutions over the course you know this is the course of a long period of time it accelerated after the 60s but this was the course of much of the 20th century <laughs> problem was all of those civil associations that used to accommodate those problems were were essentially either outlawed or undermined 
you have to really begin the process of reestablishing a ground of authority that is different than rational authority. And that's very hard to do when you've destroyed the civil, the, civil, the, the, the civil associations that were established on the older authority, whether religious or those authorities that were understood philosophically with certain limits as to what is possible in human life. Those limits were imposed by nature itself. And those things were made for realistic assumptions about what you could do with politics. But we are so utopian in our expectations of politics, we don't even, we assume now that there are no limits. We have moved a far piece down the road to uh, undermining the kind of things that once established uh, those institutions that made it possible to reconcile the human condition in a, in a reasonable way. So I was hoping to ask you about uh, you know, sort of revisiting that the, the thesis of, of your essay from last summer. Um, given what's happened in the intervening time, um, are you, do you still, are you still hopeful that Trump could uh, in some way re-enliven the kind of alternative politics that you sketched and uh, more generally, what do you see as the fate of the administrative state post-Trump? Yeah. Well, I think, look, what he's done, whether he succeeds or not, I don't think you can put a lid on, on, on the movement and the awareness that he's created in the electorate about the administrative state. So, uh, the, the, look, I, I said at the time that there would be every reason to think that the interest would, would oppose Trump, the, the, all of the interests of both parties, which would potentially provide an opportunity for him, assuming, of course, that there would be some within Washington that would see the direction that Trump was going. I used the Machiavellian uh, view that it, it, when you have when a new somebody is doing something new is going to have very lukewarm defenders because nobody knows where he's going and everybody wants to keep their foot in the old order until it looks like he might succeed but it's very difficult to succeed in our system because what Trump has shown is that those institutions still do have power as institutions and I said that the Congress might begin to act as a legislative branch in defense of its powers with a president like Trump if it is understood, if those, if it is understood to be adverse to its own interests. But the interests that they're defending are not necessarily, I think, constitutional interests. I think what they're defending are their prerogatives that they have created that both parties and all presidents have, have acquiesced in in the last 30 years. I would say this is a, a good note for us to end on, except it's a very uh, pessimistic one, I would say. Let me make it more optimistic. It, it is becoming increasingly clear, I think, that if we want political rule in America, that it's going to have to require a certain amount of 
Citizen Act, uh, the citizens are going to have to reestablish the, 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 the ground of, of their citizenship in, by paying attention <laughs> to politics. And, uh, and I, I think we've just allowed, the people have allowed, the, the country's been so stable and so, and, and so well governed, we, we, in a way, we, the, the, the electorate has not had to be very vigilant. But you can't keep a, a democracy in which you have a self-rule uh, without, one, the possibility of governing the self, which is problematic, of course, now, but also in terms of being vigilant. But I don't think it's over. Just starting. That uh, may be the perfect note to end on. And I, I just want to thank you for, for taking the time to, to, to share your insights. The administrative state is something that is uh, – become a topic of public discussion lately, but it's something that you've been analyzing and writing about for decades. I'm happy to do it, Tony. That concludes our podcast on the future of the administrative state. I'm Tony Mills, editor of Real Clear Policy. Be sure to check out the first five episodes at realclearpolicy.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>